Thank you everyone for attending today's webinar on changes to immigration law. I promise it's going to be an exciting and an informative afternoon. We're honored to have two expert presenters in the immigration field to lead the session. Today we have with us Alana Greenstein, who's a senior technical assistance attorney for the Immigrant Justice Campaign. Alana is a national resource for attorneys practicing immigration law and for the past two decades has been engaged in mentoring attorneys who practice removal defense um, and all sorts of practice between before USCIS and the immigration courts. Before joining IJC, Alana practiced immigration law with a focus on removal defense and appellate litigation. She has appeared regularly before the nation's federal courts, the Board of Immigration Appeals, the immigration courts and USCIS. Ilana, um, in addition to being an attorney at IJC, is an adjunct faculty member at Northeastern University School of Law. She holds a JD from Northeastern University School of Law as well, and is frequently called upon to mentor other practitioners and to present at professional seminars and conferences. Thank you, Ilana. We also have with us today, Jessica Kiko, a staff attorney at the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. Jessica oversees MIRA's education and training programs, their citizenship program, and also works on federal uh, immigration policy issues. Before joining MIRA, Jessica was the senior immigration attorney at Domestic Violence Ended Inc. or DOVE in Quincy, Massachusetts, where she represented immigrant survivors of domestic violence. Before joining DOVE, she was the human rights fellow at Boston College's Post-Deportation Human Rights Project where she focused on advocacy and representation of deported individuals and, and also worked with community-based immigrant organizations in greater Boston. Jessica holds a JD from NYU Law School. We're really lucky to have both Alana and Jessica with us today to walk us through the many changes in immigration law and practice. For those of you who practice immigration law, you know how exceptionally complex the practice of law has been over the past four years. Immigration law has always been challenging in a very specialized field of legal practice, but with draconian changes to law, policy, and procedure, after, you know, often one after another, practicing immigration law and helping our clients navigate the system has become even more daunting. So to help us today to go through recent changes and the impact that these changes have on our practice, uh, especially those of us in legal services, Ilana and Jessica are going to lead a discussion on recent presidential executive orders signed by President Biden. Um, we'll go over pending litigation on former administration era regulatory changes, and we'll also give an overview of the Biden-Harris uh, administration's immigration reform bill. And as Doug mentioned, in terms of logistics, if you have questions, please type them in the Q&A. We'll get to questions at the end of this session. And I will end here by just thanking everyone for joining us. And thank you, Alana and Jessica, for leading this important webinar. And Alana, it's all yours. Thank you so much, Anita. And thank you to all of you for taking the time to join this afternoon. Um, I'm going to do what is going to feel a little bit like speed talking. Um, to sort of give a short, very short overview of the major changes that the Trump administration made to immigration law and practice and sort of bring us up to where we are now and how the Biden administration um, has started to handle them. Um, so as is 
no surprise to any of you, uh, the former administration, Trump really ran his election campaign on a platform of vilifying immigrants, fostering a sort of us versus them mentality and seeking to solidify his base by casting immigrants as threats to public safety, terrorists and criminals, economic threats, and a sort of amorphous threat to our national identity. And over the course of its four years in office, the administration put a tremendous amount of energy into its anti-immigrant platform by cutting off legal channels for entry into the United States, sealing off the Southern border, and systematically dismantling processes by which non-citizens in the US could regularize their status. Um, so to sort of put this into context, um, I'm gonna go into an overview of some of the changes the former administration made to immigration law and policy, um, the status of various legal challenges to those changes, um, and then begin to touch on what the Biden administration's response has been, the steps taken so far, how they're playing out on the ground, um, and what we anticipate in the near to mid future. Um, I will say that four years of systematically dismantling the legal framework, instilling this sort of us versus them culture within the various Department of Homeland Security and Department of Justice agencies that administered the immigration laws, um, there have been some great legal victories, which I'll touch on. Um, and the Biden administration has already taken great strides to begin to turn back the tide, but there's been a tremendous amount of damage done and it's not something that can be undone overnight. Um, at first, the Trump administration's immigration actions were sort of quick and dirty and relatively unsophisticated. There was the Muslim ban, there was you know, an attempt to end birthright citizenship for people born in the United States, ending the DACA program without warning or consideration. And the courts responded by blocking the actions at times because they constituted clear violations of law. Um, anyone who's read the 14th Amendment knows that it states pretty clearly that anyone born in the United States is a US citizen, um, but also on procedural grounds as in the DACA case, because the government hadn't followed the proper procedures or given reasoned consideration to its decisions. And as time went by, the administration became much more sophisticated in its approach. And what we saw in the last few years, and especially in the last few months before the election, was a much more careful and coordinated use of regulatory changes, executive orders, and precedent attorney general opinions that sought to essentially seal the Southern border dismantle the asylum system, remove procedural protections for people facing deportation, and rush people through their proceedings with an eye to expediency over fairness. Um, so I'm gonna break these down into three main um, sort of categories of actions. And then at the end, talk about some of the um, executive orders and guidance that the Biden administration has put out just in the last um, in the last month or so. So as far as court procedures and protections for people facing deportation, um, the Trump administration, administration rescinded Obama era enforcement memos and essentially made everyone an enforcement priority. They instituted draconian case completion guidelines or quotas that immigration judges had to meet um, and in matter of Castro tomb, the attorney general stripped immigration judges of their authority 
to use a procedural mechanism called administrative closure um, to sort of streamline their cases um, and set aside those set aside adjudications of those that really were not should not have been enforcement priorities. Um, I think most people know Kestrotum is the law of the land, although the seventh and fourth circuits have rejected it. So here in the first circuit, um, we're still subject to it. And I'll talk at the end about how the Biden administration might be, be handling that in the future. Um, in 2019, um, the government instituted massive fee increases for both USCIS and for the Immigration Court and Board of Immigration Appeals, including a first ever fee for asylum application, uh, nearly doubling the naturalization fee and raising the Board of Immigration Appeals fee 800% from $110 to nearly 1,000. Um, the fee increase regulation was blocked. Um, it's currently enjoined with the exception of some of the smaller fee increases. Uh, most notably, the, I think the, the motion to reopen fee to the board has gone up by a few, you know, $20 or something like that. But for the most part, the massive fee increases have been blocked by the courts and the Biden administration has indicated that they're not gonna pursue those increases. Um, just this past August, EOIR, which is the Executive Office for Immigration Review, the executive agency that includes the Immigration Courts and the Board of Immigration Appeals, published a regulation that <clears throat> limits people's ability to seek reopening or remand of their removal cases, and which instituted procedural changes like concurrent briefing schedules and shortened briefing extensions that will make practicing before the Board of Immigration Appeals even harder than it has been in the past. Um, litigation to block implementation of that reg is pending, but meanwhile, the rule is in effect for appeals and motions to reopen that were filed on or after its effective date, which was uh, January 15th. Um, moving on to the border, the, the, the former administration focused an enormous amount of its energy um, on the southern border and really seeking to close it down by any means possible. Um, and I'm not even gonna mention the border wall. Um, so one way in which it did this, and this is actually not a border issue, but with expedited removal, um, a procedure by which relatively low level Department of Homeland Security officials, so not judges, um, can summarily deport people from the United States without recourse to an immigration judge. Um, expedited removal in July of 2019, the administration promulgated regulations um, replacing a rule that limited expedited removal to people apprehended within 14 days of entry and within 100 miles of a land border with one that allowed DHS to institute expedited removal for anyone caught within the territorial boundaries of the United States who couldn't prove that they'd been in the country for more than two years. Um, a district court initially issued an injunction, but the DC Court of Appeals lifted that injunction in September of 2020. So at this point, expedited, expanded expedited removal, um, as it's been called, is in place. Now it doesn't seem to have been implemented. Um, and the Biden administration appears to not um, intend to go forward with it. Um, but it is at this point legally 
subject to that expanded definition. Um, in 2018, many of you remember the family separation crisis, um, the executive instituted a policy of zero tolerance, which was across the board criminal prosecutions for two federal offenses, illegal entry and illegal reentry. Um, and as a consequence of those prosecutions, children um, who were caught at the border with their parents um, were separated while their parents were sent for criminal prosecution. Um, it was a project that over the course of just a few months resulted in 5,500 children being separated from their parents. Um, later that uh, year in the fall of 2018, the government instituted a metering program whereby people who were attempting to cross the southern border were essentially told that the United States was full um, or that they couldn't, they could only process a certain number of people per day. Um, and we're told to literally take a number and wait in line. And there are people who've been stuck in Mexico subject to metering who've been there for upwards of a year or two. Um, and soon after that, in the very beginning of 2019, came MPP, the Migrant Protection Protocols or the Remain in Mexico program, whereby people who want to apply for asylum are made to wait in Mexico. This is non Mexican citizens, the citizens of other countries who travel um, overland through the southern border um, have been left waiting in Mexico while they're for hearings that take place in the United States. Um, and then in March of 2020, just about a year ago, um, the government instituted a 75 year old quarantine law called Title 42 to close the southern border to protect public health. Um, in the asylum context, the government has attacked asylum on various levels. It has raised the standard for credible fear proceedings, which are sort of a pre-screening process, um, which follow expedited removal for people subject to expedited removal. Credible fear is their only mechanism by which they can stay in the United States. Um, they need to show the credible fear of being able to lay out an asylum claim before being allowed in. Um, so in 2017, the government raised the standard for CFIs, making it harder to pass um, and also terminated a program by which most asylum seekers were released from detention after passing credible fear and replaced it with a de facto policy of detaining almost all asylum seekers throughout the course of their proceedings. Um, Attorney General decisions in matter of AB and matter of LEA made it harder for people to prevail on asylum claims involving domestic violence, family-based claims, um, family-based particular social groups and non-state actors. Um, and the government entered into asylum cooperative agreements or ACAs with Guatemala, El Salvador and Honduras, whereby asylum seekers are barred from seeking asylum in this country and instead are forced to apply for protections um, in one of those countries. Um, in addition to a sort of slew of regulations seeking to um, raise the bar on asylum and change the law through regulatory means, um, the transit bar barred asylum to anyone who entered the United States at the Southern land border, who transited through a third country en route to the US in other words, essentially anyone other than Mexicans and who hadn't applied for asylum in one of those third countries. That rule, um, there's been, I think, 
three different courts that have, are, are considering the rule, um, several injunctions. It's been, at this point, fully enjoined by one court and vacated by a second, and the Biden administration has indicated that it's not going to pursue it. So at this point, the transit bar is no more. Um, and in June 2020, just you know, six months before the election, um, there was a slew of regulations all aimed at gutting the asylum system, um, including the so-called death to asylum regulation, um, and two regs aimed at preventing asylum applicants from working legally. One removed the 30-day uh, processing requirement for work authorization for asylum seekers, and the second requires asylum applicants to wait one year before filing for work authorization and bars work authorization eligibility to anyone who files more than one year after entry. All of those regulations, with the exception of those two work authorization regs, have been enjoined. Um, there's litigation pending on the two work authorization regs. This is the Casa de Maryland case. Um, and I will say for people who've, who've got clients that are, uh, for whom this is an issue, class members of that case are not subject to the, um, to the regulations, even though there's no injunction for the, the wider world. And it's pretty easy to become a CASA or ASAP member. So if you want information on that, I can email about it later. Um, and this brings us to the Biden administration's actions. Um, on January 25th, on January 20th, on Inauguration Day itself, the administration issued a whole slew of executive orders and presidential memoranda, many of which related to immigration. So I'm going to zip through most of these, giving them no more than about a sentence. And then I want to talk about two, um, the asylum and border processing executive order that came a little bit later, and the enforcement priorities um, memoranda and, and, and take a good amount of time to talk about those. Um, so on January 20th, the administration reversed a Trump order, executive order that, that excluded undocumented people from the US Census. It directed the Department of Homeland Security Secretary to, to take all steps necessary to preserve DACA. Um, it rescinded the Muslim and African bans, uh, reversed the January 2017 enforcement memo that essentially made everyone who was undocumented an enforcement priority, terminated work on the border wall, um, extended something called deferred enforced departure, which is a temporary halt on deportation for Liberians, um, and also ordered USCIS to promptly adjudicated a statute under which certain Liberians could apply for permanent residence in the United States. Um, and it froze any regulations that had not yet taken effect from doing so and directed the relevant agencies to undergo a review and recommendation process um, to decide whether and how to proceed with finalizing those regs. So any regs that weren't finalized by January 20th um, are frozen. Um, they announced that no new people would be added to MPP, the Migrant Protection Protocols. Um, so no new people were being sent to await hearings in Mexico um, and issued a 100-day deportation moratorium, essentially said that nobody would be deported for 100 days while the government sort of underwent a review of the deportation um, priorities and processes. 
Um, a few days later, um, January 26th, they issued a memo ending the zero tolerance policy, which had led to that family separation tragedy of the summer of 2018. Um, and then issued a rule on December 29th stating that it wouldn't implement the proposed fee increases. Um, at the beginning of February, uh, the government announced that they'd established an interagency task force on the reunification of families to attempt to rectify some of the ongoing um, sort of the, the, the families that have remained separated from their children. There are, I think, about 500 kids in the United States whose parents were deported. So they instituted a, a, a task force to look into reunifying the families um, and an order aimed at restoring and expanding the refugee and Iraqi and Afghani special immigrant visa processing. Um, and then a an, an executive order on um, bolstering legal immigration um, again, ordering review of all regs, orders, guidance, and policies and agency actions um, to, to ensure goals of efficiency and effective processing of immigration benefits, um, and a review of the implementation of the public charge ground of inadmissibility with reports from each bureau due in 60 days. Um, so the two that I'm going to spend the most time on, and this is where I really start speak talking. Um, so on January 20th, um, the administration issued an enforcement memo pausing deportations and setting forth new enforcement priorities. So as I said, under Trump, essentially everybody who was undocumented was an enforcement priority. Um, so first, the 100-day pause on removals with limited exemptions. Um, the state of Texas almost immediately filed suit. And on January 26th, a district court in Texas enjoined the moratorium. Um, there was a temporary restraining order against the moratorium. It was initially in effect for 14 days, then was extended again. Then the state of Arizona filed a similar suit. So at this point, the moratorium has been enjoined and deportations are continuing. Um, and on February 18th, um, ICE Acting Director Tay Johnson issued interim guidance on the enforcement priorities, the new enforcement priorities, which had issued on January 20th, um, which is effective immediately. Um, so it identified three enforcement priorities with criteria for a presumption of who's included in each and noted that those priorities would inform DHS's decisions uh, regarding all sorts of enforcement um, actions from whether to issue a detainer, whether to issue a notice to appear, um, to serve or cancel a notice to appear, uh, whether to stop, question, or arrest a non-citizen for an, administration, an administrative excuse me, violation of immigration laws, whether to detain or release someone, uh, whether to settle, dismiss, appeal, or join an emotion in a particular case, whether to grant deferred action or parole, um, and whether and under what circumstances to execute final orders of removal. Um, those three enforcement priorities are national security, border security, and public safety. Um, and the criteria that the memos lay forth um, for 
presumptive um, triggering of one of these priorities. National security, anyone who engaged in or is suspected of terrorism or espionage, or sort of amorphous whose custody or arrest is necessary to protect national security for other reasons. Um, a border security priority is defined simply as anyone who entered the United States on or after November 1st, 2020. Um, and the public safety priority, um, there's sort of, there's three general categories. One, anyone convicted of an aggravated felony as it's defined in the Immigration Nationality Act. Anyone convicted of an offense for which an element was active participation in an organized criminal gang. Um, and anyone over the age of 15 who intentionally participated in an organized criminal gang or transnational criminal organization to further illegal activity. Um, in the public safety ground, it explicitly instructs ICE to take such factors, not only as the extensiveness, seriousness, or recency of criminal activity and evidence of rehabilitation, but also mitigating factors like family, medical, community ties, and potential immigration relief. And it notes that enforcement and detention decisions have to be guided by DHS's ability to conduct operations consistent with COVID-19 protocols. Um, and it specifically says um, that the agency should exercise particular attention in cases involving people who are elderly, suffering serious or physical or medical illnesses, and those with petitions for review or motions to reopen pending, um, as long as they're the first ones. Um, the guidance says that ICE can, can proceed with enforcement for presumed priority cases, but for people that don't fit within the new priorities, it sets out a procedure whereby an ICE officer has to get written pre-approval for any enforcement action from uh, the field office director or special agent in charge and notify state and local law enforcement. Uh, there's a limited exception for exigent circumstances and threats to public safety, but for the most part, every, every case needs to get pre-approval. These approval procedures are local, um, but um, enforcement and removal operations and Homeland Security enforcement um, section in actions have to be reported to the uh, National ICE Director weekly. Um, and there's language in there saying that the director is going to review all of them to ensure compliance with the guidance and consistency across geographic areas. Um, as far as how this has played out, almost immediately after the first enforcement memo came out in January, ICE and CBP started letting people out of detention and processing people through the border. It wasn't a lot, but there was definitely um, a trickle. At the border, at first at least, it was primarily families, that's parents who were apprehended with their kids and people who had been metered and stuck in Mexico for more than a year or two. Um, this past Friday, they started processing in people who had been stuck in NPP, and I will talk more about that at the very end. Um, as far as releasing people from detention, it's it was unclear what criteria ICE had been using, but since January 20th, they've been releasing a good number of people, including people with final orders of removal, with petitions for review pending in the circuit court and no stay of removal in place. Some of them had filed release requests, but many hadn't. Um, and it really wasn't clear where the guidance was coming from um, or whether there was, you know, sort of consistent national guidance. 
Um, we'll see how that changes after the February 18th guidance when things become a little more streamlined. Um, moving on to the asylum and border executive order, which issued on February 2nd. This one really laid out um, a kind of comprehensive strategy towards asylum and border practices um, and, and specific focus on Central American migration and Central American asylum claims. The first two sections are very focused on Central America and asylum seekers from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Uh, the third is really about rebuilding the asylum system more generally. And the order is essentially a set of directives to various agencies to begin assessing, assessing, and to come up with plans for implementing the general goals identified in the order. It doesn't make any immediate changes, um, but maybe sort of a roadmap for the future. So the first section provides solutions in Central America itself, um, provides for fighting a, a program to fight corruption, stemming violence, addressing the economic insecurity and inequality, and strengthening civil society and the rule of law in Northern Triangle in El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, um, so that people don't have to flee their homes at all. This is a very long-term goal. Um, sort of hand in hand with that, there are provisions for shoring up the capacity of the other countries to protect asylum seekers closer to home. Again, another long-term effort. Uh, it seeks to strengthen the U.S. refugee resettlement pathways for Central Americans, providing ways for the U.S. to give refuge, refugee protection to Central Americans so they don't have to make the dangerous journey here and seek asylum at our border, to better identify and process Central Americans who might be eligible for refugee resettlement. Uh, it reinstates the CAM program, the Central American Minors Program, that was terminated in 2017 and has a provision for allowing Central Americans with family members in the US to enter this country while awaiting their visa processing. Um, the second section um, provides a pathway for rebuilding the US asylum system. Um, it talks in terms of resuming the safe and orderly processing of asylum claims at US land borders. Um, instructs the Departments of Homeland Security to work with the Attorney General, Health and Human Services, and the Centers for Disease Control to promptly begin taking steps to reinstate the safe and orderly reception of processing of arriving asylum seekers, including reviewing Title 42, under which the US has expelled nearly 400,000 people without any consideration um, of their asylum claims under the pretext of the pandemic, um, and deciding to terminate, rescind, or modify it. Uh, reviewing the ACAs, the Asylum Cooperative Agreements with El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Um, it rescinds various Trump era memos, including catch and release, which essentially mandated detention of anyone apprehended at the Southern border. Um, and it orders review of expedited removal procedures and substance. Um, orders DHS to review and recommend a more efficient and orderly process that's timely and which adheres to standards of fairness and due process. Um, as I mentioned, Trump had announced an expansion of expedited removal into the interior. DHS is to review that and decide whether to revoke or modify it. And it immediately terminates uh, HARP and PACER, um, which are two processes by which asylum seekers um, incredible fear uh, 
proceedings were rushed through credible fear very quickly at, while in CBP custody at the border with no access to counsel. Um, as far as substantive asylum eligibility goes, um, the order instructs the Department of Homeland Security and the Attorney General to within 180 days, examine the current rules, regulations, precedent decisions, and internal guidelines on asylum to see if the United States adequately protects people seek fleeing domestic violence and gang violence um, to bring us into line with international norms, which seems like a signal to get rid of the AG decisions that tried to eliminate those protections. Um, and it orders agencies within 270 days to promulgate joint regulations on the definition of a particular social group. Um, finally, it orders a review of the migrant protection protocols in their entirety and uh, um, indicates, it orders the agencies to um, recommend whether to terminate or modify MPP. Um, I, as I mentioned way back on the first day of the, um, current administration, Biden announced that no new people would be put into MPP. And just this past Friday, February 19th, um, they began processing people who had been subject to MPP and were waiting in Mexico into the United States. Um, this just began last Friday, so we have very limited information. But at this point, um, there are about 25,000 people in Mexico. And phase one, um, is um, aimed at those who do not yet have final orders of removal. Um, it's starting up in three ports of entry. Uh, on Friday, 25 people were processed through San Isidro um, on the other side of uh, San Diego. Brownsville, Texas, it was set to start processing today. It looks like it's probably gonna be tomorrow before that actually begins. And El Paso is set to start on February 26th. Once all three are up and running, the goal is to process 300 people a day at each port of entry. Um, there is an online registration system, and I will put up in the chat box um, the URL for that when I'm done. Um, UNHCR right now is in Mexico helping people register online. There were some tech glitches. The system went down at several points, um, but there are people registering. There are also um, NGOs in the United States that are helping people with the technology. Um, and the idea is that people who enrolled in MPP earliest should be the first to be allowed in. Uh, but the government has also announced that it'll have a process to consider vulnerable people, in quotation marks, out of turn. It's unclear what that means, who will qualify, what the procedure will be. Uh, but there is a section in the online registration page where you can point out medical conditions, and presumably that will be part of how they assess it. Um, UNICEF, UNHCR, and IOM are helping people to get to the staging area at the border, helping arrange transportation, filling out change of address forms. It's form EOIR 33. People are getting COVID tested before entry, um, and they're being paroled in under INA 212D5. Uh, it's not clear how long they're going to be paroled in for. Um, so far, nobody's been detained, and the government has said that most people will be released, not detained. A few people are being fitted with ankle monitors, but not all. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, the parole document, the I-94 form, form, that people are being issued serves as a form of identification that lets people travel, get on buses, 
Um, but ICE isn't arranging transportation. So relatives can go down to pick up relatives at the ports of entry. And there are organizations in San Diego that have set up a shelter where people can get medical evaluations after crossing into the US and wait to be picked up. Um, a few things that are unclear at this point, phase one is people without final orders of removal, but it's unclear whether that's going to include people with pending appeals to the Board of Immigration Appeals. Those people shouldn't be an NPP in the first place, but a lot of them were improperly kept in the program, um, and there are some number of them um, who are still there. So it's unclear how those are going to, whether those will be phase one or not. It's also unclear what's gonna to happen to people who are in MPP, but entered the country without inspection, um, sort of out of desperation in the meanwhile. Um, and it, you know, until now, most immigration judges on the MPP dockets have denied changes of venue unless they get some proof that CBP has actually removed a person from MPP. And it's not clear how that's gonna play out um, now that large numbers of people, and hopefully all of them, um, are going to be actually in the interior, whether they'll keep the MPP dockets in those few courts or whether people will be able to get venue changed to the courts with jurisdiction over where they're living. Um, with that, I think I have outstayed my welcome and overgone my time. So I'm going to put that website up into the chat box and turn it over to Jessica. Great. Thank you. Um, and I think you were actually right on time. Um, so congratulations, and I hope that I can do the same. So I've put together a PowerPoint. I'm going to share it. So give me one moment while I pull that up. All right, so I've been tasked with providing you with an overview of the Biden-Harris immigration bill, which was just introduced last week. Um, heads up, this is a long piece of legislation, though not as long as some other comprehensive immigration reform bills that we've seen, uh, but it tops 350 pages. So this is really kind of a high level overview. Um, and I at that won't even be covering every section of it. So um, the bill is called the US Citizenship Act or the US Citizenship Act of 2021. Um, this is the bill that was announced on day one of the new administration. Uh, the White House released a fact sheet that provided some information about the bill. Um, and then we didn't see the language for the next four weeks or so. Um, the language was under negotiation. Um, it turns out that along the way, some criminal carve outs were added to the legalization portion of the bill, uh, but it was finally introduced last Thursday, February 18th. Identical bills in the Senate and the House. In the Senate, um, the lead sponsor, Senator Menendez of New Jersey, and in the House, it's Representative Linda Sanchez of California. Um, the bill is organized in five titles, which are listed on this slide. I'm really only going to provide information on Title I, Pathways to Citizenship. These are my um, titles, by the way, for the titles <laughs> uh, that have much longer titles in the actual bill, but this is shorthand. So Title I, Pathways to Citizenship, Title III, the reforms to legal immigration, and then Title IV, which deals um, with a variety of things, including immigration courts, a little bit of the, vo uh, the border, and some on vulnerable populations. I'm not going to cover in detail um, Title II, or really at all, Title II, which is um, the title, the section addressing root causes of migration that includes 
Uh, for example, the implementation of a four-year strategy to address the root causes of migration, including corruption, gang violence, human rights, um, labor, police, protection for vulnerable populations, and authorizes a billion dollars to do that work. Uh, it also talks about strengthening the local regional response to refugee protection in Central America. Um, it also includes provisions on kind of the use of smart technology um, at the border and creates some new criminal offenses around um, illegal entry and helping others um, and entering the United States illegally. And then Title V is really about protection for immigrant workers, uh, which centers on increasing employer penalties. It also makes reinstatement and back pay available to all regardless of immigration status. And, and then it also has some provisions um, that are meant to specifically make U visas more available to um, individuals who have suffered abuses in the workplace. So Title I Pathways to Citizenship, this is a new legalization program. Um, so the bill creates a new status called Lawful Prospective Immigrant or LPI status, which would be issued to eligible individuals for a period of six years. It can be renewed. And after someone has been in LPI status for five years, they can apply for a green card if they're otherwise eligible. So the eligibility for LPIs, which is then also the eligibility for um, people who can kind of bypass this temporary status and go straight for a green card under the program, uh, which I'll talk about in, in more detail next, but essentially dreamers, folks with temporary protected status or deferred and forced departure and agricultural workers. The eligibility requirements are continuous presence since January 1st, 2021. There's a little star there because there are some exceptions for people who were removed under the last administration and have not since illegally re-entered. Um, and then there's a long list of ineligibility grounds based on criminal convictions, national security concerns, smuggling, avoiding military service and international abduction. It kind of tracks certain grounds of inadmissibility. Um, and then we see what has now become uh, familiar in these programs also um, ineligible if you have one felony or three or more misdemeanors um, except for marijuana offenses. And there are some waivers available for these grounds of ineligibility, but not for all of them. Um, that said, where the waiver is available, it's a fairly broad and generous waiver, um, which can be granted for humanitarian reasons, uh, for family unity, or um, if it would otherwise be in the public interest. Um, okay. So for dreamers in particular, so this is not just for DACA holders, but a broader category of dreamers, um, they don't have to apply for the LPI status. They can go straight for the green card if they were younger than 18 when they initially entered the US. And by the way, I should have prefaced this whole thing. It should be clear to everyone on this call, but this is a bill that was just introduced, right? So. Um, the road ahead for the bill is going to be long and difficult and there will be lots of changes. And if anything comes out the other end, um, many of these provisions are sure to have morphed. Um, so I don't want anyone to get the sense that any of these, you know, unlike the executive orders that Ilana presented on, which, um, you know, many of which contain changes that are effective right now, none of this is effective right now. It's just a proposal um, that has only recently been introduced. Um, 
So going back to dreamers, I apologize for not saying that right up front. Um, if they were younger than 18 when they initially enter the United States, if they've earned a high school diploma, a GED or equivalent, um, have a degree from higher education or completed at least two years of a bachelor's degree program or technical education program or serve two years in the uniformed services, or they can show income for at least three years or 75% of the time that they had work authorization for uh, prior to applying. Um, there is a waiver that is available for compelling circumstances. They also need to have registered with the Selective Service if they would otherwise be mandated to do so and then meet all of the eligibility requirements uh, that were in that initial slide in terms of uh, criminal grounds of in inadmissibility, et cetera. The spouses and children uh, would also be included and it creates kind of a streamlined process for DACA holders. It doesn't provide the details. It essentially just says that a streamlined process will be set up. Um, it also um, expands access to certain um, benefits, uh, specifically mortgage programs for DACA holders that they don't currently have access to. Um, and importantly, it says that principal applicants, so not the spouses and derivative children, but the principal applicants that apply through this program would not be subject to the five-year bar for Medicaid benefits. And then a similar program is also set up for individuals uh, with TPS and deferred enforced, enforced departure that can apply for a green card if they were physically present on January 1st, 2017, um, or physical presence since January 1st, 2017. There is an allowance for departures that were authorized or if they were brief, casual, and innocent uh, and under 180 days. Um, and importantly here, the person would have had to be eligible for TPS or DED as it existed on January 1st, 2017. It doesn't require that the person actually have been granted uh, or have applied and registered uh, for one of those programs as long as they can show that they would have been eligible. And just like with the DREAMers and just like with the LPIs, they have to meet all the other eligibility requirements. Um, with this program as well, spouses and children would be included. And then the other section that was kind of snuck into this section on TPS is that a grant of TPS would be defined as meeting the requirement of having been inspected and admitted, which um, for those of you that practice immigration law know how important that can be in terms of making sure that individuals have other avenues of adjustment, for example, through family members. Um, and then the last section um, in, in this first title deals with agricultural workers. Um, so again, it says that individuals can apply for a green card through the special agricultural worker program if they performed at least 2,300 hours or 400 workdays of agricultural labor. And it provides all sorts of definition about what meets that requirement in the, uh, in the five-year period um, immediately preceding the application. And just like all the other programs, you have to meet all of those background checks uh, and criminal history eligibility requirements and spouses and children are also included. Um, and then there's like a, a slew of uh, other provisions that are included in Title I. It expands B visas, uh, which are kind of um, visas that are meant to tie over individuals with approved family petitions that right now are quite limited. So they would be available to anyone with an approved family petition 
as well as spouses and children of those folks who have um, uh, who have received LPI status. Um, it has some really good uh, criminal immigration fixes, so it considerably narrows the definition of what would constitute a conviction. Right now, the definition of a conviction under immigration law is much broader than what would be considered a conviction for criminal purposes. And so this would bring it more in line with what would be considered a conviction in our criminal system, um, so it would not include uh, deferred adjudications, um, judgments where uh, prior conviction or finding has been expunged or vacated. And it also restores something called uh, a JRAD, which is a judge's recommendation against deportation. So this is a vehicle that allows criminal judges to make a recommendation against deportation as part of the criminal case. Um, it also narrows the definition of a sentence. Uh, so right now, for many purposes, when uh, immigration law refers to a sentence having been imposed, it includes a suspended sentence. And so this would go, um, do away with that uh, kind of expansive definition of what counts as a sentence. Um, it would expand the petty offense exception. So right now, individuals who are found ineligible for a visa or a green card um, can sometimes overcome that if their conviction is considered a petty offense, but they're only allowed to have one conviction that can be considered a petty offense. And so this provision would expand that and allow um, two petty offenses essentially to be, um, um, to be excused as part of the eligibility review. Um, and then it creates a much broader waiver of in inadmissibility as well as deportability for lots of other grounds, though not all of them. Um, it still limits it when it comes to national security grounds as well as aggravated felony grounds, but a more general waiver of humanitarian, family unity, or public interest reasons, as opposed to many of the waivers that we currently have that required showing hardship to a specific relative who's a US citizen or green card holder. Um, there's a long section that um, creates more, you know, that includes a series of technical fixes to create more opportunities for judicial review. So this is, you know, beyond the immigration courts and the Board of Immigration Appeals, but to the federal circuit courts. Um, and then it also reduces the requirement for naturalization. So for citizenship applications, instead of being required to have five years as a green card holder, individuals that can show they've had their green card for at least three years, but were previously um, lawfully present with work authorization for three years before that would be eligible for naturalization. And that's how folks, for example, who have had DACA or TPS for a number of years before they're able to take advantage of this legalization program would have kind of an expedited route um, to citizenship. Not expedited overall, but uh, for that last stretch of having their green card. Um, so that's uh, Title I. Um, Title II, as I said, is addressing the root causes of migration. And then Title III includes um, a bunch of reforms to our legal immigration systems. And I've kind of broken it down between family-based, um, just one quick note on diversity visas, and then employment-based immigration. So for family-based immigration, um, it does a number of things, including it recaptures any unused visas. Um, so 
you know, visas that were allotted for family-based categories, but for one reason or another were not used in any given year between 1992 and 2020 would be recaptured and made available. Um, it makes spouses um, as well as permanent partners, um, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment, and unmarried children under 21 of green card holders, immediate relatives. And so that means that they would no longer be subject uh, to numerical limitations. Um, and, and so they would be kind of in the same category as spouses and children of US citizens. It also exempts um, certain categories from number from the numerical limits, including derivative spouses and children of applicants and individuals who have been waiting for 10 or more years. Um, it increases the per country caps for high admission countries. So currently for our high admission countries, um, their contribution to family-based migration can't top 7% of all immigrant visas, and that would be increased to 20%. Um, it eliminates the three and 10 year bars as well as the permanent bar for illegal reentry. And this is incredibly important because right now individuals who have accumulated unlawful presence um, after coming to the United States, including after coming to the United States on, um, on some kind of temporary visa um, and would like to be able to adjust through a family-based petition or not able to do so unless they leave the country and then come back in. And when they leave the country, they would trigger um, this bar to re-entry. And so this would do away with those bars. Um, it eliminates the false claim to US citizenship and admissibility for individuals who were under 21 at the time that the misrepresentation was made. There are increased protections for surviving spouses and children of a principal applicant who has passed away. Um, and it also creates greater protection for LGBTQ families by treating permanent partners as spouses um, if the um, couple was unable to marry in the country of origin. Um, and also not, not really related necessarily only to family-based immigration, but I stuck it on this slide anyway. Um, it significantly restricts presidential powers under Section 212F. And Section 212F of the INA was a section that was used by President Trump to uh, put in place these kind of sweeping travel and entry bans. Um, and so it would create more checks and balances, including mandating consultation with Congress, a report 48 hours after um, any suspension is put in place to make sure that um, it's having the intended effect um, and requires kind of um, specific evidence be provided when a decision to suspend entry of any class of non-citizens is included. With the diversity visa, this is, uh, the least populated slide. It has one tiny fix, which is just to increase the diversity visa. So this is the visa lottery visas that are made available, the visa lottery green cards from the current number 55,000 to 80,000. So quite a boost there. And then employment-based immigration, which I'll admit is not um, my area of strength or background. Um, but it would exempt immigrants who graduated from a US higher education uh, institution with STEM degrees from the numerical limits. Uh, it would eliminate the per country caps and numerical limitations on individuals who have been waiting in an employment-based category for more than 10 years. It would bump up the number of immigrant visas available in the third preference. Um, 
it would eliminate the requirement that international students maintain a foreign residence or it would loosen it somewhat. Um, and then it also addresses H-1B visas. It does allow for prioritizing H-1B visa issuance based on wages offered by employers. Um, but um, it would also provide protection for children of H-1B visa holders who would otherwise be aging out um, and would provide work authorization for H-4 visa holders across the, the board. So those are spouses of H-1B visa holders. Um, and the last section in, in Title III deals with integration and naturalization. So in the integration section, it actually adopts a number of provisions that um, were initially introduced under the New Deal for New Americans, which is a bill that was introduced by Senator Markey last year, is going to be introduced by him again um, this Wednesday, I believe. Um, and so in those sections, it authorizes a number of funds to be distributed to community-based organizations um, that are providing citizenship preparation services, English language instruction, workforce development services, as well as legal services, specifically legal services for individuals that are seeking um, legalization under the program implemented under the bill, as well as citizenship. Um, and then it um, also includes some of the provisions from the New Deal for New Americans that are specific to naturalization. Um, so it would eliminate the English and civics, um, oops, that should say test, not text, <laughs> apologies, uh, for a greater number of individuals, specifically older green card holders who perhaps haven't had their green card for as long um, as the requirement is right now. So right now, individuals who are 55 and older and have had their green cards for 15 years, or individuals um, who are 60 and older and have had their green card for 10 years uh, can be exempt or are automatically exempt from the English um, test, but not from the civics test. And this would extend that language exemption and also include a civics test exemption for older immigrants um, as set forth on this slide. And it would also eliminate the English and civics test for individuals who attended high school in the United States with the assumption that people that go to high school here or receiving that basic instruction on US history and civics. Um, there's requirements, you know, in terms of having to show that the curriculum addresses some of these topics um, and, you know, that they have to provide the high school diploma, but they would otherwise be exempt uh, from these. And then there's a case by case waiver for individuals who are 60 and older and have been living in the US for 10 years, even though um, not all of that time may have been uh, in, in green card status. Um, okay. And then the last title that I wanted to provide some additional information on is Title IV. Um, so the, the title itself can be a little bit misleading and it, it jumbles lots of different things in one place. Um, but it would increase the number of immigration judges as well as the number of support staff at the Board of Immigration Appeals, so that first appeals level from immigration court decisions. Um, it also would provide for more training and uh, professional development for immigration judges as well as better technology for immigration courts. 
Um, and it has a really excellent appointment of counsel provision for quote, any non-citizen financially unable to obtain adequate representation, including children and particularly vulnerable individuals. And, and then it provides examples of individuals that would fall in that category, as well as parents of minor US citizens. Um, and then there are several provisions that deal with expanding the legal orientation program. So that's the program that is given to um, traditionally to individuals who are in immigration detention, um, but it would expand that to also individuals who are not detained as well as sponsors of unaccompanied minors. And it would also expand the help desk program to all immigration courts um, and has provisions as well expanding um, family case management systems and alternative to detention programs. So it doesn't provide a whole lot of details in terms of what that would look like. Um, and then the last section is really about humanitarian protections. So importantly, it eliminates the one-year filing deadline for asylum. It also says, and I didn't include this on the slide, but I, I believe it says that you can file for asylum again, even after having been denied asylum, if you can show that you're filing based on changed circumstances. So it wouldn't even be a motion to reopen, it would be a new application. Um, it increases the number of U visas available um, from um, 10,000 a year to 30,000 a year. And it would provide work permits within 180 days of application to individuals who have filed for asylum, um, as well as for U and T visas, as well as those applications are not frivolous and individuals would have access to those work permits until a final decision is made on their application, including any judicial review that they may be entitled to. Um, this section also would prohibit the removal of individuals that have pending U's and T's and VAWAs, both VAWA self-petitions and VAWA cancellation um, applications, and would also put in place a presumption of non-detention for um, those same individuals. Um, and then in the same section, there are some provisions that are devoted to talking about the need to coordinate with Central American countries on the reintegration of families as well as the reintegration of unaccompanied minors. And so it talks about um, making sure that there are adequate medical and psychosocial services available, um, that there are resources for education and vocational centers, um, that there are strategies to promote the hiring of return non-citizens um, and uh, programs to make sure that individuals have access to necessary identity documents. Um, and then um, there are provisions finally on providing improvements and some expansion of special immigrant visa programs when it, as it pertains to Afghan and Iraqis. Um, and I think, I don't wanna misspeak. I don't think there's anything, oh, as well as creating a new program for Syrians who worked with the US government for at least two years since 2014. So I think, I somehow managed to squeeze it all in five minutes faster than I even planned. So I will stop there. That's the overview. And I look forward to questions. So again, we're inviting everyone to post questions in the Q&A box. And I think we, we actually have one question 
that has to deal with the immigration judges, the statistics that are collected. Um, and the question is, um, has EOIR or will they remove the dashboards showing in real time in immigration judges statistics for the year from the judges benches? I'm not sure if it's asking, um, will there be real time? I think it's more asking like, will there be some relief of pressure on immigration judges that right now are working under kind of a quota system of how many cases um, they have to adjudicate. I didn't see anything in the bill that would address that. I don't think it would be a legislative fix anyway. And I don't believe that we've seen anything in terms of administrative action or executive orders that would go to that. No, they're really, as far as I've seen, if I, 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 I I hope that whoever posted the question will correct us if we're not actually answering your question. But um, I haven't seen anything uh, indicating that the administration is sort of turning to the like due process and procedural issues that have come up in immigration court. So the case completion goals are still in effect. Um, I suspect that if they are changed, they're probably not first priority and they're not sort of public, I don't know what the word is, um, of as much interest to the public. So I hope that we see those changes and I hope that the case completion guidelines are sort of quietly and quickly removed, but I haven't seen anything indicating that. Okay, great, there's another question. Um whether in the proposed bill or any by, by executive order, are there any proposals to add asylum officers to the asylum office, including the Boston Asylum Office? I mean, the asylum office gained a huge number of officers not that long ago, right? I mean, Anita, you probably know more about this than I do. Um, so I haven't seen anything in proposal, but the asylum office is, the Boston asylum office is um, going to be expanding to up to 27 officers, where right now we have six or seven interviewing officers. And we heard that from the director of the Boston asylum office. Um, my guess, I think it's been slowed down because of COVID, but uh, yeah. that's, you know, the Boston asylum office has moved and they will be expanding uh, almost tripling um, the number of officers. Yeah, um, and I don't know how it's gonna play out, but um, there was also, um, you know, part of one of the, the asylum executive orders was ordering DHS to review expedited removal procedures and to sort of ensure that they are move more efficiently, more quickly, put people through the process. And I hope that part of that will be sort of moving back to what we saw for the first many, many years after expedited removal and credible fear processes were, were put in place. I mean, they, they were created in 1997 when certainly not everybody was put through expedited removal and credible fear. Um, relatively few people were put through that. Most people were just allowed in and given a notice to appear and put in removal proceedings. And so there wasn't as much need for asylum officers to be, you know, detailed down to the border to be processing 
millions and millions and millions of credible fear interviews, which would free them up to do the substantive asylum work um, where they are so desperately needed. Excellent. Um, are there, and this is another question, um, are there any practice advisories about whether to file asylum applications while the death to asylum or mammoth asylum reg is under the injunction? Um, I haven't seen any practice advisories on any of these asylum regs. Um, I know that there's been, you know, sort of discussion on various listservs about whether or not it makes sense and people have different opinions on that. I do believe the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at UC Hastings um, issued a lengthy practice advisory on the new regulation. I don't know if they've put out specific advice about what they recommend in terms of individuals who would be filing now and how that may play out. And um, I can actually uh, put the, uh, the okay. link to that in the Q&A box to, to go out to everybody. Uh, and this is the which I actually don't, you, if you can't access it, I think you did have to register to access it. So for some reason, if you can't, if you just go to the UC Hastings um, webpage, you'll just have to enter your information in. For some reason, if you can't open that link. Um, I think actually that's it um, for the questions. And with, we have four minutes left. So if there are any other closing remarks that you guys would like to give, um, this is your chance. <laughs> I will just add that, you know, in addition to the Biden immigration bill, there are several other um, pieces of legislation uh, on immigration that will be moving in the coming weeks. So not only has the DREAM Act being re been reintroduced as has the SECURE Act, um, but also um, we are expecting to see an essential workers bill being introduced as early as this week, I believe. Um, and uh, with the possibility of a pathway to citizenship for essential workers also being included in the second COVID package that is focused on infrastructure and recovery. Um, so, you know, there will be kind of multiple trains um, that will hopefully all be headed in, in that direction. Well, thank you both, Ilana and Jessica, for leading today's discussion and for sharing all of your wealth of knowledge and, and expertise. And thank you, everyone, for attending again. Anita, I do see that Sheila has her hand raised. I don't know. If we can unmute. Sheila, do you want, if you have a question, do you want to post it in the Q&A? We can see if we can get to it. Oh, will the PowerPoint be available, made available? Great question. Jessica, could you share that? Oh, PowerPoint? yes, absolutely. Well, the recording will be made available and I'm, ha I'm happy to share the PDF version of the PowerPoint as well. Perfect, thank you. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone. Thank you to our panel and thank you all for attending. Enjoy your days. Thank you, bye-bye.